This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In the two decades prior to the Civil War, the Hutchinson family singers of New Hampshire became America's most popular musical act. In his new book, Singing for Freedom, the Hutchinson family singers in the 19th century culture of reform, our guest today, Scott Gack, follows the Hutchinsons as they contribute to the transformation of American culture and originate the marketable American protest song. Gack is visiting professor of American studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and an accomplished double bass player. Scott Gack, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. How are you today? Ah, I'm doing quite well, thank you. And you're in Connecticut? I'm in Connecticut right now. Very good. Is it a, is it a pastoral setting? <laughs> uh, actually, I, I do have an, a nice view of, uh, of some Connecticut hills from here. Oh, excellent. Very good. Well, thanks for coming on today. Uh, now, how did you get started with this? Uh, how did you? What was your introduction to the Hutchinson family? I was really frustrated by uh, by historical works on on music and culture in general, and how it related to kind of power. You know, po- politics is always seen as the the overarching decider in mm-hmm. society, and yet we see so many different kind of cultural movements that really affect people in their everyday lives. So I was looking for a topic that combined, uh, or that somehow combined, culture and politics in a, in a more meaningful way than I, I believed had been done before. And the Hutchinsons, uh, thanks to their anti-slavery consciousness and thanks to them building their career through, through reform movements, uh, kind of capture that, uh, that kind of relationship. Can you talk a little bit about the reform movements in uh, the United States back then? Give us a general idea of what we're uh, we're talking about when the Hutchinsons were uh, becoming popular. Now, before you, you, the time frame you yeah. you mentioned, it's the go ahead. I'm sorry, I just uh, want to kind of frame it in the the, the right. Uh, the Hutchinsons uh, are basically born. Uh, there there are four Hutchinson family singers. There's John, Judson, Asa, and Abby, and and they're born. Uh, between 1817 and 1829, so they're growing up in the in the 1830s and 1840s in the United States. At that time, there are uh, a bunch of a very important social reform movements that are that are uh, captivating uh, New England in particular: uh, temperance, uh, anti-drinking, uh, anti-slavery, communitarianism, women's rights. Uh, these are all kind of issues that are pulsating through society, much in the same way that you'll see. Uh, anti-war, uh, communitarianism again, uh, and civil rights in the 1960s. Now, what was their, uh, I, I would say, what was their inspiration for getting into this type of singing? Why would, why did they, uh, I, I'm sure they could have, they, they see, well, I assume they could have just gone straight into entertainment instead of taking a risk and getting into protest. What was their uh, impetus behind that? Well, actually, there is no way for them to get into entertainment at the time. Huh. Hutchinson's, uh, this, is, this is before Elvis, this is before radio, <laughs> really? this is before recorded music. Uh, there was very little concert infrastructure at the time. The market for culture is just uh, in its very beginnings, and, and will take off during the 1840s and 1850s, and the Hutchinson's will be on the cutting edge of that. But um, that's actually one of the, the things that's quite remarkable about the Hutchinson's, is that they use 
reform movements, the infrastructure of anti-slavery, William Lloyd Garrison uh, and the uh, American Anti-Slavery Society, uh, his newspaper, The Liberator, uh, Nathaniel P. Rogers in New Hampshire uh, is the editor of a, of a famous anti-slavery paper there. Uh, they cover the Hutchinson's every move, uh, and they invite the Hutchinson's to come perform at anti-slavery meetings, at anti-slavery picnics, uh, and thus cr- expose the Hutchinson family singers. Uh, this fledgling group, basically, from New Hampshire that decides to buck the trend in their family. Uh, they're, basically, all their older brothers become farmers. Uh, they decide to buck that trend and, and try and, and basically just go out on a limb and, and try this uh, you know, music performing thing. Uh, this is, hasn't been done, really. Uh, especially for an American performer. There are lots of European uh, acts going around the United States at the time, but for American performers, this is really uh, one of the, the, the Hutchinson Family Singers and several minstrel groups are really the, the, the first American popular musical acts uh, of, of the time. So um, they, uh, they kind of wing it, and, uh, and, and they build themselves up through this, uh, this other uh, infrastructure, which is a uh, reform infrastructure, and, and gain a name for themselves through that. Uh, did they go ahead, Mike? Well, I just wanted to ask: Is there a tradition that they came out of? In other words, you t- met, just mentioned some European uh, minstrels who who traveled around the country. Was was it was their sense of where they were and why they decided to to embark on this coming out of a, a European tradition? Was it a slave tradition where we know that there were a lot of sort of protest songs of of sorts being sung during the sl- time of slavery? How where did that come from? The Hutchinson's impetus. Uh, comes from two sources. The, the first is actually going to be from the church. Uh, the, they are part of a series of Baptist revivals uh, in New Hampshire uh, in the early 1830s. And um, there are, one of their older brothers, Joshua Hutchinson, is uh, the church choir master. And so he, in effect, teaches the, his younger siblings how to sing and how to read music. Um, the church, uh, in a larger scope, is really the foundation of American musical education uh, in the 1830s. It's not until the mid-1830s that public schools actually start to incorporate music into their curriculum, and it, be- and it, comes, out of a, uh, it comes out of this religious tradition of, of building choirs and singing in, 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 in church. Um, the other influence is, uh, is, that, is a European model. And, in fact, there are, there's a, uh, a bunch of very famous European family singers that... Uh, tour Europe in the, uh, from like 1815 to 1840, and they finally come over. The Rainers is, is, is a very famous family. They come over in the 1840s. Uh, and the Hutchinsons very much modeled their stage presence on, uh, on the Rainers in particular. When you're saying that, what do you mean, uh, what was the stage presence? Um, well, to, to be really specific, they sang with their hands on their hips, um, and, and also how they, uh, how they uh, enunciated on stage. They tried to be very unlike today's popular musicians. They actually enunciated their words so that you could hear what they were saying. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and that's, that's part of it. Uh, the Rainers uh, also happened to, uh, they were rumored to have been from uh, Tyrolia. So uh, they yodeled on stage and dressed in a national costume. The Hutchinsons do a similar thing for somebody, uh, you know, kind of an American style. They don't yodel on stage, but they sing of having come from the mountains Mm -hmm. of the old granite state. Mm -hmm. Well, how much uh, did the Hutchinsons contribute to that American style that you're talking about? Because I I assume back then there was was Europe, and then there wasn't the United States as far as style was going. Exactly. This is an era where, you know, if you read the writings of of, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson or uh, Margaret Fuller, you know, people are searching for that national style, that national voice. And uh, the Hutchinsons are, are one of, of several, um, several groups on the cutting edge 
of creating of what of creating what is an American style. Uh, the Hutchinsons hadn't don't visit um, the White Mountains uh, in in New Hampshire until 1844, two years after their their great hit, The Old Granite State, has come out, where they sing of having come from the mountains of the Old Granite State. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's very much a, uh, a somewhat I won't say abuse of nature. But they're using a mythology to uh, to promote themselves of having come from the land, though they were farmers, absolutely, and they did come from the land. They didn't quite come from the White Mountains because they hadn't even seen them yet. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Scott Gack, and the uh, the book is Singing for Freedom, the Hutchinson Family Singers in the 19th Century Culture of Antebellum Reform. Um, I, I, I want to just kind of throw in, interject here uh, sort of the fun fact about the, the song, the old granite state it was a huge hit for them now there were no recordings to speak of so how did, were they how did they get any well uh, let's back up before i say that before i ask you that which is it was so popular that at one point it was considered for something pretty significant wasn't it yes it was considered for uh, the national anthem of the united states the national anthem actually isn't selected until congress uh, chooses uh, what we know today the star spangled banner in 1931 so there's this great, seemingly great void for a long period of time, uh, during which the Old Granite State is one of the tunes uh, suggested, um, yes. which seems obviously very incorrect, because <laughs> talking about New Hampshire and yes. somehow New Hampshire is going to stand for the whole entire United States, um, is particularly a New Hampshire anti-slavery song, which is what it is. Right. Um, that, that's a true, truly wacky... Uh, but it, was, it speaks to the popularity of the song. Yes, absolutely. And, and one of the... Uh, one of the, found, the foundation of, of the popularity of that song is that the Hutchinsons take a revival tune, um, the old ch- uh, the old churchyards, and uh, and transform that tune uh, into uh, the the old Granite State. The Hutchinsons quite literally uh, just take the tune and put their own lyrics on top of it and create their own family song out of uh, what was a very trendy. Uh, tune from the Millerites, which was a Protestant sect uh, uh, in their day. I imagine that those those two words have never, are, are not linked very often. Trendy and Millenites are, are probably not a <laughs> sort of a, a a phrase that you'll hear very often. I did want to ask you just uh, just sort of how we know it was popular because lots of people sang. It. We didn't have recordings. Did they make money off of this song? How how did that work? How was what was the mechanisms uh, involved in that? Well, deciding what's popular and what's not is is a little bit of a a dicey proposition when you're going back as far as the 1840s. But there's a lot of solid evidence for the Hutchinsons uh, in that we know uh, they detailed their concert receipts in their journals. Okay. So we know that uh, in a time when the average American or the middle class American uh, would make $500 in a year, the Hutchinsons are able to pull in $1,000 a night during their shows in New York. (laughs) So, I mean, we're talking an astronomical uh, amount and, and, and a type of popularity that, you know, you would think of in terms of, uh, you know, the Beatles or, you know, some kind of right. massively cra- crazy, uh, you know, crazy popular group. Now, now was their popularity uh, bound by sort of uh, geographical areas? Were they more popular in the Northeast or in the South? Or how, how did that work? <laughs> the Hutchinson never <laughs> could go south. Uh, I was wondering. They made it as far south as Washington, D.C., and they do play for President Tyler, who's a slave owner, uh, and, and we can talk about that in a second. But um, uh, the Hutchinsons just couldn't ever go into the south. Indeed, during the 1855-1856 uh, senatorial campaign in Virginia, uh, one of the candidates um, brings up uh, a simple fact against one of his opponents, and he, 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 he says, I would never talk about the Hutchinson family singers in my campaign. 
because the, the other person mentioned the Hutchinson, uh, Hutchinson Family Singer song in passing, a song that had nothing to do with anti-slavery, but um, mm. the fact that they were anti-slavery singers completely, um, basically barred them from the South. I mean, it, it just was not a possibility. They get run out of Philadelphia for their shows um, in 1845 and 1846 because they, they also encouraged playing to integrated audiences. They're at, they're at a very cutting-edge uh, moment in time where they're actually playing to, to a cross-racial uh, alliance that, uh, that very few other people are daring to do. Were, were they run out, or did they refuse to play? Well, it's, uh, it's a little bit of each. <laughs> okay. Because a pro-slavery mob approaches the managers of Musical Fund Hall uh, and says, we are going to violently shut down the next Hutchinson Family Singers concert if they play to black and white listeners. If they play only to white listeners, we'll leave them alone. And the managers of Musical Fund Hall aren't going to risk their hall to, uh, to violence. So they tell the Hutchinsons, you either play to whites or you're not going to play at all. And so the Hutchinsons uh, wind up not playing to anybody. Um, they cancel uh, the rest of their shows. Now, you mentioned, too, a, a story about John Tyler. Yes. yes. Well, well, how did that go? <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, now, John Tyler would have been, what, the... 13th, 12th, 13th, 14th uh, president. I'm sorry, we don't need to get so historic. 10th president. 10th president. 10th president. But, I know so, my so, Well, I'm just saying, because I know Lincoln was 16, that's kind of where, where my dividing line is. So so this is obviously uh, quite a bit before the Civil War, but still, and obviously, slavery was a huge issue. Um, it's, it's in 1844, and the Hutchinsons okay. are invited to play uh, yeah. for John Tyler. Okay. And, uh, and they play in his parlor for a, a whole host of politicos uh, of the day. Uh, and they, they bemoan that uh, Daniel Webster, they see Daniel Webster, the New Hampshire politician, drinking. They say, oh, sin in such high places. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they, um, they play a host of songs, but not their most uh, fervently anti-slavery song. They sing the Old Granite State, in which they, sing, they, they claim that liberty is their motto and they shall not be enslaved. And in their journals, they, uh, they, they swear to themselves that they have, they have sung... For, for liberty, which for them in this case meant they sang for abolitionism, for anti-slavery, uh, and for Washingtonianism, which uh, is a reference to the Washington temperance movement. Uh, so they thought that they sang for anti-drinking, for temperance, and for anti-slavery. Yet, uh, Well, to, to President Tyler, who was pro-slavery, let's make sure, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yet, um, yet there, of course, there's a big pro-slavery contingent in the room, okay. and Tyler comes up and shakes their hand and says how much he enjoyed their performance, Something that, if he really understood the uh, the anti-slavery message behind their music, he would never have done, mm. uh, never in a million years. Um, but what happened ultimately is is what happens to many of us uh, when we listen to listen to music. Um, there are many times when I'll listen to a song and I'll be singing it for for months on end, sometimes even years on end, and then all of a sudden I'll have that moment. Oh, that's what that's really about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you're just, you're horrified sometimes with yourself. Sometimes it doesn't matter. It's not that significant. But you're just like, oh, my goodness. You know, you get caught up in the, in the emotionalism and the tune, and, and you enjoy singing it. Uh, and, and this is certainly an, an example of when the form of the song, you know, overtakes the content. And, and John Tyler is certainly one of those moments. It's, it could be the first instance of an uh, American bandstand moment where he said, it's got a good beat. I can dance to it. Yeah. yeah sort of. Exactly. He didn't really know what it was about or didn't really fully comprehend what it was about. Now you mentioned temperance and and anti-slavery in the same breath. What what is that about? What connected the two back then? Because to me, it seems like uh, they're they're fairly far apart. <laughs> but to people then, they were very much linked. For the Hutchinsons, one of the the driving or the driving force behind their reform vision is um, 
is the coming of the millennium, you know, the second coming of Christ. They're coming from a very religious view on, on what's going on. And so they're, in their mind, they're trying to purify the world of several sins in order pr- to prepare for this, this wonderful moment. One of their uh, famous songs is called There's a Good Time Coming, and that good time is the millennium. So, um, so that's really what ties, uh, ties the two together. You know, temperance uh, was to help uh, fr- free people from the enslavement of alcohol, uh, you know, anti-slavery to help people, obviously, from the enslavement um, by other men, uh, the women's suffrage to, uh, again, the enslavement by men of women. Uh, so these reforms are all tied together underneath a very religious vision, a vision that after the Civil War will collapse. Mm-hmm. Is, is that pretty much their peak right before the Civil War? Uh, the Hutchinson's peak is really the mid-1840s through uh-huh. to the mid-1850s. And so that is basically right before the Civil War. Um, part of the reason, they would have been popular, way uh, extraordinarily popular uh, through the Civil War, but, but Abby uh, gets married in 1849, and, and her husband writes to Frederick Douglass at his newspaper, The North Star, in, in Rochester, uh, New York. He writes to him, uh, I don't want to share Abby with the crowds. Mm-hmm. You know, she's mine. I'm not okay. going to let her out. What was the reaction among their fans at that point? Do we have any sense of where they? Yes, uh, they they felt quite literally. The headlines ran that the Hutchinson family singers have lo- has lost its brightest bud. Uh, um, Abby Hutchinson uh, very much completed the family style uh, presentation. You know, there were three brothers and the one sister. That kind of gave some kind of gender balance or a notion that they were a, a family on stage. Uh, and also her voice, obviously, as well, uh, would, uh, would uh, mellow out uh, her, or at least shift some of the registers a little upward. Uh-huh. Um, the, uh, her retirement uh, basically guts the group of also its... Uh, uh, let's just say they didn't get along in the 1850s, the uh-huh. three brothers. So, everybody's, so... Everybody hated the other's wife. Uh, uh-huh. Everybody's suspicious of everybody else. Asa Hutchinson ultimately moves to Hutchinson, Minnesota, which is a, a town that the Hutchinsons actually found in 1854. To be a, but he moves there to get away from everybody else, uh, and the group basically collapses uh, underneath uh, uh, Abby's departure. Uh, also, in 1859, in the basement of John's house uh, in Lynn, Massachusetts, Judson will, will hang himself. Oh, my God. So we literally have this, you know, dr- tremendous drama going on at the same time that there's this tremendous national drama going on with slavery and expansionism. Uh, so you have this internal Hutchinson family singer story and this external nation in, in disarray as well. So it's kind of tabloid journalism at that point, I, I, I guess. Was, is that the way it was approached back then? Were people still very much involved in the story of the Hutchinsons outside of music at that point? Oh, oh, people were involved with the Hutchinson story all the way through and after John's death in 1908. It is so difficult to explore the Hutchinson family singers because there's so much misinformation in the newspapers. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there'll be reports that the Hutchinson family singers were seen in Cincinnati, Ohio, and, and you know, you look at their journals and, and you know, they're in <laughs> Europe during yeah. the time. You know, and, and people just, you know, they reported sightings, they reported that uh, that Judson was in the hospital because he was insane, um, and it turns out that one of their older brothers, Jesse Jr., is, in, is, is the one who's actually in the hospital, and it's because he has, uh, he has typhoid fever. You know, there, there are just a crazy amount of gossip that, that circulated around the group. So it had to do, let me ask, did it have to do as much with their musical talent as it did sort of the 
issues that they became associated with and how contentious those were. I mean, for to this day, many of these issues are still contentious. Right. It has it has to do with a little of each. Yeah. Um, they, uh, you know, they're they're slandered by, by being called Garrison's nigger minstrels right. because they perform to, to black and white audiences. Right. But at the same time, people had a very uh, human interest uh, stories, you know, in them. So the, you know, they would interview Judson about his his uh, his mental depressions and his fits of uh, of the horrors, as he liked to describe them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were fascinated by Abby Hutchinson, who was who was only twelve when she first hits the stage in eighteen forty three, um, and they lust very much lust after Abby Hutchinson. Ludlow Patton, her eventual husband, is a crazed groupie who follows them around for six years. Mm. So, um, yeah. so there's a human aspect, and there's also the contentiousness around the issues that they represented. At the at the risk of perpetuating a, a, a urban myth. Uh, he he becomes kind of the Yoko Ono of of the Hutchinson oh, no, family. <laughs> I knew that would upset Nathan. No, yeah. uh, that's because that's not true. But uh, but anyway, um, I like Yoko. yeah, I know we all like. I know we like Yoko. <laughs> I this is not turning this into a Yoko bashing interview here. <laughs> but uh, I want to remind our listeners once again that we're speaking with Scott Gack. The the uh, book is Singing for Freedom: The Hutchinson Family Singers and the Nineteenth Century Culture of Antebellum Reform. Um, you know, I, it was difficult. I do have some recordings of the Hutchinson family, but it's even difficult to, to get hold of any of the music. It's it's not exactly an easy task. Uh, why do you think that is, and why do you think that not too many people really know about the Hutchinsons, even though they played such a uh, they were such a force back in that period of time? Well, I'm going to have to respectfully disagree with you on getting the actual music. Okay, I've had I've had a lot of success uh, through eBay. Uh, of getting hold of actual, you know, physical copies of the Hutchinson Family Singers' original printouts from 1844 or 1845. Well, the sheet music, yes. Uh, yeah. The sheet music. Yeah. That's not a problem to, to get, because as, as people uh, people find, you know, bound volumes of sheet music from the 19th century, uh, you know, when someone passes in their family and they go in the attic and they just find this stuff that's just been sitting around. So there's lots of that. But recordings... Um, you know the biggest thing that, that worked against the Hutchinsons is, of course, you know the year of their popu- the years of their popularity. Um, it was before the era of recorded sound. There are very few. I mean, Stephen Foster is perhaps you know the one uh, example uh, that of, of somebody who still has a, a great deal of popularity, still is recorded quite often, uh, and yet is from basically from the Hutchinsons era. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of that, you know, the Hutchinsons also were talking about anti-slavery and temperance. These are not particularly well. Obviously, you know, civil rights, but uh, is is a is a large issue and has been for for a very long time. But anti-slavery, in and of itself, is not uh, an issue any longer. Um, mm-hmm. Thankfully, since the Thirteenth uh, Amendment, so uh, the issues that the Hutchinson spoke to, as well as well as their kind of quaint religious vision, uh, again, a vision that really collapses after the Civil War. Uh, there's kind of an exhaustive weight. Uh, people, uh, many New Englanders, shared that religious vision that something great was going to come. Uh, if we purge the nation of the sins, and after the Civil War you purged the nation of a sin, and yet no great uh, era of peace and prosperity has come. No, yeah. instead there's a there's a backslide. There's there's uh, you know black disenfranchisement. There's uh, Jim Crow. Uh, there's there's something terribly wrong. Uh, something terribly something had gone terribly wrong with the Hutchinson's vision, and John Hutchinson tries to deal with this in the 1890s uh, as best he can. But that religious vision has fallen away. People start to look at the world in a much more critical. Uh, with a much more critical eye. Uh, you have the rise of pragmatism, you know, John Dewey, the philosopher, Charles Saunders Peirce. You we're looking at the world uh, without ideas turning into faith the way they had in the 1840s. I want to ask you, you mentioned that John died, did you say 1908? 
Is that, John died in 1908, yes. Is there any recording of any Hutchinson, um, because we were recording by 1908, did anyone yeah. put down any? Sorry. Not that I know of. I've uh-huh. looked for wax cylinders. I always run through them just in case, because John had certainly had the, uh, the money to, to have done that, and he was certainly invited to all these sorts of events and sang at, at, at nearly all of them. Uh, and, but I find no evidence of a Hutchinson family singer recording. The Holy Grail. Yeah, yeah I would imagine Grail. it is for for a musicologist. Well, I, w- I want to thank you so much for being here, Scott Gack. The, uh, once again, the, the book is Singing for Freedom. It's about the Hutchinson family, the 19th century culture of antebellum reform. Uh, uh, pleasure having you on and uh, a great book. So uh, thank you very much for being thank here. Thank you for having me, guys. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.